Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this gathering. Um, and just for every soul represented here. Um, yeah, for those that can't be with us this morning, either because they're on the road or because they're sick. We know we've had that, Lord, and we, we pray for them. Um, and we ask that in this moment, you, by your Holy Spirit, would lead us into your truth. Yeah, that in the hearing of your gospel, we would be changed once more. That there would be a newness, a freshness, yeah, a change of perspective that is not just enlightening, but, but transformative, God. We invite you to make us new in the hearing of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was kind of wondering this week if you've ever had that moment in high school maybe it was junior high maybe it was college or even like a, a master's level course where there's there's this awkward thing that happens where the teacher the professor calls on someone and asks them to give a summary of whatever reading everyone was supposed to have done I want you to give a synopsis they might say tell us the plot of the story. What did you like the most about it? And then they proceed to do this very awkward, uncomfortable thing for everybody in the room. It's embarrassing for everybody because they know what's happening. They know they haven't done the reading, but instead of just acknowledging that, they kind of lean all the way in and they pretend as if they have. And they're going on just like the title. I don't, it, maybe this never happened to you. It happened to me a, a number of times, just watching this look on somebody's face. They just make the decision. They're just going to go by what's on the back cover of the book and just, just try to roll with it, right? And they come up with some ridiculous stuff, right? But what's so embarrassing about it is the Grapes of Wrath is not about, you know, whatever they might have in mind. It's not about winemaking in Northern California, right? Like, that's not at all what it's about. The title's not going to tell you everything, right? The Catcher in the Rye is not about baseball. I thought it was when I was in middle school, okay? It's not about making sandwiches. It's not about, like, it's, it's much more complex. It's a coming-of-age story, right? But we miss that sometimes, right? And it's this awkward moment for so many people. And I think the thing we have to accept is that Genesis 1 is kind of the same. Genesis 1 is, is not about what we think it's about so often. Genesis 1 is not about how long it took God to create the world, Genesis 1 is, is not about whether or not humanity evolved from some lower form of life. It's not. Genesis 1 is not a scientific analysis of how the beginnings of this world look. It's not a historical summary of what every day or era looked like when it was all happening. And it's not just a myth trying to explain how the world works. It's unique in the way that it's approached. Genesis 1 is about the nature of God. That's what we're trying to get to as we read Genesis 1. What God is actually like, who he really is, and how he relates to this thing he has created, to his creation, right? So the question we need to be asking is not how long did it take? Did it really happen like that? The question we should be asking is like, what is the nature of God? That's what this story is trying to tell us. Because Genesis, from the very beginning reveals to us a, a God who has decided to cre create order in the midst of chaos. He's decided to create fullness and substance in the midst of, of emptiness. That's what God has decided to do. This is a God who desires to share his goodness 
He doesn't hoard it. He wants to give this thing away, the goodness of who he is. And so there's this theme throughout chapter 1. You know it. We didn't read it all. But the theme in chapter 1 is this. God creates something, and when he finishes creating that thing, there's this phrase we hear. It's repeated over and over again. God looks at it, and he saw that it was good. Right? Over and over again. He creates something, and he saw that it was good. God desires to bring his goodness into this world, right? He desires to bring his order, his, his harmony, his beauty, that which is at the heart of who he is. He desires to share it with this world, with us, with something beyond himself. God's movement toward creation from the very beginning is unceasing generosity. This is who God has always been. God has always been giving himself away, always been giving of himself from the start. And what's interesting is, for some reason, once God creates, he doesn't like step away and then just kind of watch at a distance while everything kind of happens. Maybe it'll work out, maybe it won't. God doesn't abandon creation. And at the same time, there's this unique dynamic where God isn't manipulatively trying to control it. Because we all know there's this really hard thing about being human, which is like, why does God let that happen? Why did this terrible disaster take place? God neither tries to control everything, nor does he abandon it all. God has like this very good purpose for this world. He desires to bring this world to something. He has valued this world. He called it good. And he is now forever covenantally tied to creation. He can't forget it. He cannot abandon it. He must bring to completion this good purpose he always had in mind for it. This is what Genesis 1 is trying to show us, a God who desires to bring his good creation to his original good purpose for it. He's sharing his goodness. But more than anything else, though, maybe, maybe you are captivated by this line in the passage. I think it's the most intriguing part of the whole thing. And God said, let us make mankind in our image. Let us make mankind in our image. And we're left with this question again. Well, what is the image of God? If I am to image God, what does this image of God look like? What is the nature of God that he is imprinting on humanity? What does that look like? But then there's more. There's this, this subtle little pronoun, right, used over and over, us, our. How is God in us? I mean, like we, we say it every week. We believe in, in one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ, and yet he's in us, he's in our. How can God be in us? What are we supposed to do with this? Now, the simple answer of the church throughout its history has been God can be in us because he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the people who are writing this, as they're conceiving this, they don't think in those terms. This is something God reveals by his Spirit over the ages. The word Trinity is completely foreign to them, unfamiliar to them, and yet the church has said this is what is happening Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all working in perfect unity, perfect harmony, all bound together by this, this never-ending cycle of self-giving love. 
sacrificial love. This is the Trinity. And historically, on this day, uh, the church has celebrated what it calls Trinity Sunday. The day after, uh, the Sunday after Pentecost is, is always Trinity Sunday. And I think if we're honest, Trinity is a mystery for not just people outside the church, but for people inside the church. And it should be that way. It's like something we need to preserve. It is mysterious, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. And what's interesting is, like, that's the very reason God has chosen to reveal himself through more than just nature, more than just creation, more than just the first five days, right? He's decided to create humanity. And just as he is many, yet somehow mysteriously one, we are many, and yet we're being made one. And we are uniquely able to reveal what God is like, who he really is. God has decided to make himself known in this world, is what Genesis 1 is telling us. God desires to share himself, his goodness with this world, with something outside of himself. And he has fashioned us into that image of self-giving love, of unceasing generosity. This is how God is going to make himself understood, is humanity. So, image of God. Let's just start there. Let's try to, to walk through all of that. And if out of all of creation, humanity is the only created thing that is made in the image of God. God creates lots of things, but nothing in his image but humanity. How exactly are humans, like you and I, the image of God? Let's get all of the normal misunderstandings out of the way. No, God doesn't look like you. God doesn't have arms and legs like you do. God, though it says he made them male and female, that doesn't mean God is male or female or some mix of the two. God is not like you. This was especially important in ancient Israel. This is one of their theological distinctives. This is what made them different. God is not like you. They insisted. You cannot imagine that God is like you in that way. This was very important to them. They were adamant about it. This idea of imaging God. You can't image God. You'll never be able to create an image, a likeness of God that is accurate. And that's why what, one of the, the most important commandments first given in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, there's this one very special one. That Israel cannot make for themselves an image of God. You don't do that. You don't make an image for yourself. You don't make an idol and bow down to it. That cannot be done. And the whole problem with this thing of idolatry, maybe you've wondered sometimes, like, like what is so terrible about creating an image for God? Now, maybe it's wrong to create images for other gods, but why is it wrong to create an image for him? And the whole problem is that idols are like cheap replicas. They're cheap imitations. They never fully get at it, right? It's just an empty imitation, a knockoff, always. And yet you bow down to it and you treat it as if it is God. It doesn't work. I don't... I don't know about you guys, I'm, I'm a pretty cheap person. Most of you know this. If you know me at all, you know I'm a pretty cheap person, and I'll try pretty much any off-brand product because, you know, I'm a pastor with a, a family. Of, you know, there's five of us, so it's like I'll try any off-brand product, but off-brand Oreos, you just have to know better than that, right? 
You just have to, and you can only learn these things from experience and trying. They're never going to get it right. It's never going to be the same. Diet products, they're always promising you something, right? It's so close. It's the same, just as delicious. Diet Coke, it's like, listen, man, you can drink Diet Coke for long enough that you might deceive yourself into believing it's the same or it's delicious, but we have to call it something different. It's, we can call it like diet drink. We can call it diet cola, but we cannot call it Coke. It's something else. It belongs in its own category, right? It's a cheap imitation. It's a, a replica. And idolatry functions the same way. Every idol you make is selling you a lie about who God actually is. Everything, every time we try to make an image of God, every time we try to imagine what God is like and, and create a likeness for him, it's always less than who he actually is. It's never as good as he actually is. And a lot of it is about us being able to control God, being able to, to feel somehow more close to him, to be able to make more sense of him. But it's always less than he really is. And in that sense, if you think about it, all sin is idolatry at some level. All sin is, is, is idolatry at some level because we take something of God, something good, and we twist it. We take something good and we try to make it for ourselves. Something that God desires to give to us, whether it's, it's joy or, or pleasure or meaning, we try to, to construct it for ourselves, to fabricate it for ourselves rather than receiving it from God. And we always end up with something less than what he intended to give us in the first place. We always end up with something that is less than real joy, less than lasting satisfaction and meaning and purpose, less than the pleasure he desires to grant to us. It's always less. It's always a cheap imitation. Idols are empty. Sin is empty. And it's an affront to who God is. This is the way they feel about the idea of imaging God, giving God an image. But the rest of the nations around Israel do just that. That's what they're always doing. Religiously, this is how they function. They're constantly fabricating new idols. They keep them in their homes. They keep them in their temples. They bow down to, bow down to them regularly. This is the way it works. And it's not just like a, a, a religious thing for them. Even politically, they would see this. A king very often would, would erect statues all over his domain so that People who might live at kind of the edge of his domain, who might never encounter him, who might never see him and know him for who he really is, instead he would erect a statue there so that those people, though they might never encounter him, they would know who he is, what he's like, how powerful and sovereign he is, his great feats, how he's defeated all these other kings. It was a thing they were accustomed to. So when Genesis says God made humanity in his image, it's as if God is saying, humanity is the only suitable image of God. Humanness is the only suitable way to make known who God is. There's only one way to image God, to make clear what God is like, and it is humanity. Humanity is the means by which the world can understand what God is like. It's this interesting thing. This is how God is going to reveal himself in all of creation, through humanity, through humanness. God has decided to make humanity unique. 
distinct from everything else he's created, right? And we know this all because, again, in Genesis 1, there's a pattern. If you haven't read through it before, if you haven't read it recently, it's worthwhile because there's something shocking that happens, right? There's the pattern over and over again. God creates something and he sees that it is good. And then he moves on and he creates something else and he sees that it is good and he moves on and he creates something and he sees that it is good. But with humanity, on the sixth day, he doesn't just move on. Something different happens. Humanity is the only aspect of creation that when God is finished with it, he addresses directly. He speaks to humanity. He doesn't speak to anything else he creates. He speaks directly to humanity. And when he speaks, all of creation is what he's offering to humanity. He gives everything else that he has created into the charge of humanity. It's yours to enjoy. It's yours to take care of, to care for. It's so interesting. God creates and he sees that it is good. God creates and he sees that it is good. But when he's finished with humanity, we're told God looks at it and he sees it is very good. It's very intentional in the Hebrew. It's good, it's good, it's good. But with humanity, somehow creation becomes very good. God treasures this in a unique kind of way. And he invites humanity to be fruitful, to multiply, to increase the boundaries of this kingdom he's building on the earth, to spread it. God values humanity differently. He sees its goodness. He celebrates its goodness. And so he gives humanity authority. He gives humanity a voice in creation. God invites humanity into the joy of his existence. God invites us to experience what he has always known eternally. He invites us into the joy of who he is. And so he gives humanity the freedom to do what they desire, to pursue what they love, what they care about, what they want, just as God himself is free. He allows us to be free. Just as God has power and authority, he allows Adam and Eve to, to rule, humanity to rule and have authority. But it's different. The freedom and authority that we normally imagine is not what God has in mind. God's brand of freedom, God's brand of authority look completely different. God doesn't manipulate or force his way into anything. God doesn't use his freedom for his own sake. God doesn't hoard his goodness to himself for his own sake. He gives it away. This is who he is. And in Genesis 1, it's like humanity is being invited into that, to learn that, to learn God's freedom, to learn his authority, to learn this, this way of functioning. Not as something not as something for ourselves, but as something to be shared, to learn that grace that is at the heart of who he is, to learn that self-giving love that is at the heart of who he is, to learn that unceasing generosity that is at the heart of who he is. Learn grace and give it away because that is what God has always been doing. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. This is how God wants to make himself known solely through humanity what it means to be made in the image of God. But remember, 
God does something intriguing. The statement made is, let us make man in our image. You can't get around it. it it's, it's unique. It's very intentional, what they're doing. It's not a mistake. It's there and it's repeated. We believe in the idea of the Trinity. We believe in the idea of a God who has made himself known as, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We profess this week after week. Three distinct persons and yet still one Godhead. There is no hierarchy though. None is greater than the other. None seeks to establish itself as, as the ruler over the rest. All joyfully submit to one another in this self-giving, sacrificial love. This is what is at the heart of God. It's what John means when he writes 1 John, that God is love. The very substance of God, what binds him together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is love. The Father is ever pointing toward his Son, and the Son is ever desiring to glorify his Father. The Spirit given to us by the Son is ever pointing us back toward Father and Son, constantly drawing us nearer to them. There is this eternal self-giving, this act of submission eternally in the Godhead itself. Perfect harmony, perfect unity, three in one, right? This is what we believe. And so what we have to accept, what it means to, to image God, to be the image of God, is that we are to reveal the unity of God, the harmony of who God is. That same oneness, that same self-giving love, all of it is supposed to be demonstrated in who we are, right? We are many. We are diverse. We are distinct. And yet, we are being made one. Here's the thing, though. We often miss something. I don't know about you, I generally am, am, am very caught up in this idea. Let us make man in our image. I get stuck in that. But God uses the plural for more than just himself. God is referring to humanity in the plural, right? He goes on. In the image of God, he created them. Let us make mankind in our image so that they may rule. And it kind of, it highlights something about our society that we, I think we all recognize. We live in a highly individualistic society and we generally think about our faith first and foremost at an individual level. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be. We think too often in the singular and God is not talking in the singular, neither about himself nor about us. We can't think just as individuals about our faith. Genesis says God made us in his image. When we normally think about this, we think God made me in his image. I have been made in the image of God. I bear the image of God. Is that true? Yes. But it is because God made us in his image. God doesn't make me in his image. And this is the way we always function in terms of our faith. Always about me. But the picture is not of a bunch of individuals who are made in the image of God and who realize that they have to live in such a way as to reveal who God is. They make a, an intentional choice as individuals to do this day after day. No, God gives a different picture. 
He has made humanity together into his image. And again, I know sometimes Kyle, he's always up here, he's splitting hairs, and why does this really matter? It means this. By yourself, you are not the image of God. You cannot image God well by yourself. And there is a world full of people who are trying to follow Jesus by themselves. There are a whole lot of people who imagine that they are worshiping God, they are making known who He is right by themselves. And from the beginning, the picture we get is different than that. You cannot image God well by yourself. You cannot do what He's invited you to, to make Him known by yourself. It is impossible to be the image of God alone. That doesn't mean that individuals aren't made in the image of God. Yes, that's true. But it flows from this, this togetherness, from this sense of community. Faith is made perfect in community. You may have heard us say these kinds of things. God is imaged, God is revealed in community. This is the way it's supposed to function. Our love for one another. Jesus says it directly in John 13. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. This is the means by which I, I intend to, to make myself known through this community, not just through you as individuals. The way this, this community of, of believers, the people of God, the way they choose to love one another, the way they choose to forgive one another at, at cost to themselves, the way they choose to be reconciled to those that they have hurt or who have hurt them, that is unique. It reveals the nature of God, what he's actually like. We together are the image of God, not by ourselves. And we're invited as many to reveal the oneness, the unity, the harmony of who God is. Now, that can sound really uplifting, right? That's really encouraging, right? Isn't, isn't that kind of like beautiful and sentimental? Like us together, look at what we're, we're called to do. It's beautiful. The problem is you might mess around and read the rest of Genesis, in chapter 3, humanity completely disregards God's direction and wisdom, and they use the freedom he's given them to take for themselves what they want because they imagine that God is withholding something from them. They're lied to. They begin to believe that, that God would withhold something. Nothing in the story so far has told us that God withholds anything. God is constantly pouring himself out, but we begin to believe these lies, that God is withholding something from us. And it costs them everything. Genesis 4. Adam and Eve have a child. His name is Cain. They have another child. His name is Abel. And in a moment of bitterness, Cain ignores the image of God in his brother. He murders him. You go further. Chapter 6, you begin to realize this is not just Cain that has an issue. It's not just one human that's got an issue. All of humanity is broken. Something is wrong. Something is eating at them from the inside. A whole generation, an entire world of people are so broken that God doesn't know what to do with it other than to start over. Only Noah and his family are somehow restored from all of this, saved from all of this. You go further, chapter 11. There's a group of people who take the gift they've been given one language, this unity they've always known, this freedom that they've been given, and they decide that they're going to build something to make a name for themselves, we're told. They desire to make a name for themselves, and so they build a tower that's going to stretch all the way to heaven, 
They want to be like God. Because again, God has withheld that from them. God is different from them and God doesn't want us to become like him. So they decide that they're going to to make a way to become like God. They decide to make a name for themselves. If you read further, it just continues. Humanity doesn't image God well. Humanity doesn't reveal who God actually is. They fail at the very thing that he's called us to. We don't reveal the grace of God. We don't reveal God's unceasing generosity. We tend to reveal otherwise. Because we hoard for ourselves. We're constantly storing up more for ourselves. And we constantly spend our lives trying to explain why we can't be more generous. We constantly spend our lives trying to explain why we can't be more gracious because, you know, once I forgave fill in the blank and they hurt me. They rejected it. And so now I have to be more cautious. We say, well, I can't say yes because I've said yes too often in the past and it's, it's caused me to be hurt. I've been put in some really hard positions, right? We don't reveal the unceasing generosity and grace of God. We are forever finding new ways to hate one another, forever finding new ways to hate those that are different from us, who look different than us, who function different than us, rather than learning to dwell together in unity in the way that God actually is. Yet the beauty is, the same thing remains true throughout the whole story. Humanity is constantly changing. Humanity is constantly failing at this thing. Yet God, remember, though he doesn't manipulatively try to control humanity, he refuses to abandon humanity. He refuses to abandon creation. He gives humanity freedom, but not to undo his purposes for them. This is who God is. When humanity has lost everything, God stubbornly clings to us. That's the story of Genesis 1. It begins there. He's covenantally tied to this thing. And humanity, even after all of its failure, humanity is still the only way God desires to be known in this world. This is the way God desires to be known, through humans as broken as you and I. This is the only way God desires to be imaged in this world. It's through humans, through humanness. It's the only way God will do it. And that's why when he sees humanity is so severely broken, he doesn't just start all over. He sends the eternal son to be born as a human. Because the same thing God always intended from the beginning, he intends now in Jesus. This is the way he's going to speak. This is the way he's going to make himself known through humanity. And so Jesus becomes human. This is what Paul's getting at. In Colossians 1, there's this moment. Maybe you remember it. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For God was, was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus reveals perfectly and completely what God is like, who God really is. It's not a cheap replica. He's the real thing. He doesn't fail. Everything we've learned throughout the story so far is undone in Jesus. Jesus perfectly reveals what God is. 
He reveals the self-giving, unceasing love and generosity of God. That's what Jesus does. Jesus can say in some places, like in Matthew 28, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And yet in other places, Jesus willingly, obediently submits to the will of his Father, even when it's painful, even to the point of death, right? This is what Paul's getting at in Philippians 2. He doesn't use the image of God in himself. He doesn't use his equality with God as something for his own advantage. But rather, he takes on the nature of a servant. He gives himself away. Self-giving, sacrificial love. This is who Jesus is. And in Jesus, God is inviting humanity back to his original purpose for us. To make known what he really is like. Who he really is. In Jesus, he's making possible what has not been possible so far for humanity. In Jesus, he's offering us not just salvation, but the Holy Spirit. Not just forgiveness for things we've done in the past, but a spirit to empower us toward that purpose, which he always had in mind, that humanity would become day after day, more and more, the image of who he is, that we would become the image, the likeness of God to make known who he really is in this world. Jesus is an invitation to embrace the goodness of God that has been there from the beginning, to embrace the generosity of God, to live in this gracious way, to be marked by the same things that Jesus is, that God has been from the very beginning. This is the invitation in Jesus. And as the band comes and, and we move to the table, the invitation is the same. There's this beautiful reality. We're many, and yet we partake of, of one loaf of bread. We, we break just one loaf. We, we drink of, of, of one cup. Like, together we do this. There's something beautiful about this. In a moment, we will all together, in the same instant, do this. Reminding ourselves that we are a part of this one thing God is doing. Reminding ourselves that what God is doing in this world is not just good, it is very good. And he's inviting us into that deeper goodness, into something far better than we can fabricate for ourselves, into something far better than we've imagined for ourselves. God is inviting us in this moment to become one, to bear testimony to who he is, to the unity and harmony and self-giving love at the heart of who he is. This is the invitation in these moments. So feel free, come and, and tear off a piece of bread. Come and, and grab a cup. And then you'll be welcome to, to move back to your seats. And then just wait. Uh, Jonathan's going to come up and, and lead us through all of this. Father, we ask in this moment that you would uh, just give us clarity. That we might hear your voice. That we might know your nearness. That we might see you for who you really are. that we as your church would truly become the body of Christ, that we would see ourselves for that, that though we are many, we are one, that we would be bound to one another in the same self-giving, sacrificial love that binds you together. And we pray you form us into the image of God day after day.